chapter 1, please. Revelation chapter 1. Verses 4 through 6 of Revelation chapter 1. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests of the God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight that we can come around your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you that you revealed, Father God, unto us these truths, particularly revealed to us, to us your son through this book. And we do pray tonight you bless our time. Give me wisdom, I pray, from on high. May uh, your word be a blessing to our hearts. May we hear only that which you would have us to hear. And may we leave tonight rejoicing, having been in your presence. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when you and I, well, I guess this is old hat, but when you and I write letters, you start a letter with, Dear so-and-so. Uh, you know, when uh, we send out emails, we usually start with, uh, Hi, depending on who we're writing to, or Good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, very rarely, I guess, we start emails with dear, but we do start some other way, and, and various forms of media. But you know, when it, uh, but uh, whatever form we use to write to people today, we're not very elaborate in our salutations, our beginning, and our greetings at the beginning of a letter. But when it comes to the New Testament greetings, they are by far a lot more elaborate than modern-day greetings. And John's greeting here in Revelation chapter two, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, is certainly a little more elaborate than hello or good morning. He spends four, uh, these three verses declaring uh, simply a salutation uh, or a greeting at the beginning of this book of Revelation. And I want you to notice me, first of all, the address in verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. The address, this letter is addressed as a general epistle to seven churches in Asia. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, this is not Asia as we know it uh, today. When we think of Asia, we think of Sri Lanka, we think of Indonesia and those areas. Uh, this is not Asia as we know it. It's the Roman proconsular province, which was called Asia, an area a little smaller than Asia is today. And the seven churches were located in the western half of what was known as Asia Minor. And that was a Roman province uh, in the western part of modern-day Turkey. So you've got to go way up to 
towards Turkey to get this idea of Asia, okay? These seven churches, if you look at the map you, and find the churches of Ephesus and Thyatira, you'll notice that they're way up there uh, in the area of Turkey today. Now, John does not tell us why only seven churches are mentioned. Certainly by the time we get to the book of Revelation and we get to AD uh, 90 odd, where we are here, there are more than seven churches throughout the known world. The book of Romans has been written and Thessalonica and so on. There's all these other churches. So why only seven churches are mentioned, he does not explain to us. Probably, though, the reason for that is that these churches are meant to represent different types of churches present in John's day. Or, if you like, if you take the cross-section of these seven churches, they were representative of all the churches in the early church at that time, in the first century AD. If you looked at these seven churches, you could find, identify your church, wherever you were in the world, in one of those churches. And... Uh, same is true for today. We know that these churches also are representative of eras in church history. Uh, we can look at the church history and we can identify parts of church history that align with these seven churches, not uh, clinically and not absolutely, and I don't want to categorically state that each one of these are absolutely just that era because they overlap. In fact, in every generation you can find examples of each of these churches. But there's no doubt that the seven churches represent uh, events that happened in church history during these 2,000 years. And not only that, but there are seven different kinds of churches that we find today. And just as they could in the early church in the first century have taken any one of these churches and identified their church by that church, you and I today can look at churches around the world and we can identify churches uh, with each of these churches. So the characteristics of the seven churches are revealed in churches today. And, of course, there are some of them that we ought to be more like than others. Now, we'll see further <clears throat> the significance of these seven churches when we get to the seven churches. But suffice to say that these seven churches were literal churches in Asia Minor as John is writing this letter. There's nothing fanciful about these churches. These are genuine churches in general, genuine locations in Asia Minor that he's writing to. And this letter, therefore, like all other letters in the New Testament, is addressed as a circular letter to the churches. And indeed, that means it's addressed to us. And you and I can read it and take heed to it. And you and I can implement the principles in our lives and the life of our church because this book was written to churches even though mo much of it is about the tribulation period when the church is not there this book was written about the Lord Jesus Christ to churches it's for your and my benefit and remember there is a blessing for those of us who read it and understand it secondly note the salutation here in verse 4 he says grace and peace, now, grace be unto you, and peace. John addresses his readers with the traditional greeting of the day. Grace be unto you, and peace. This was a, a customary greeting that you would find, in, uh, that you do find in many of the New Testament books. The Apostle Paul, 
employs this kind of greeting at the beginning of many of his books. Grace be unto you and peace. And this greeting speaks of what, Christ, uh, what Christians experience in salvation. You know, we say hello. We say, how are you? Uh, but what the early church would do, they would say, grace and, uh, be unto you and peace. In so doing, in talking to another believer, they're expressing in their salutation the Christian's experience in salvation. Grace be unto you speaks of God's attitude to us as believers. You know, we're the recipients of God's grace because of the redeeming sacrifice of Christ upon the cross of Calvary. And the word grace here carries the idea of graciousness or giving benefit or favor. It's asking for God's continued favor towards us. When somebody in the early church would meet somebody, and they would say, grace be unto you. They didn't shake hands, and they would say, grace be unto you. In fact, they would probably greet each other with a holy kiss, okay, and uh, uh, give each other a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And, uh, and then they would say, grace be unto you, brother, or grace be unto you, sister. Not only are they identifying what it was that saved them, the grace of God, but also what they're doing is they're uh, proclaiming that they would love to see God's grace continue to be bestowed upon those that they're greeting. This, of course, should be the desire for each of us. You know, in a sense, you know, when we meet somebody, when we say, hello, how are you? Uh, we really ought to be saying, grace be unto you. We, we really want, we really ought to want God's continued favor to be bestowed upon our fellow believers, shouldn't we? Shouldn't there be a desire for each other? I mean, I know that's what we mean when we, you know, in a sense, when we say, hello, how are you? We are seeking to, to uh, engage in, in, a, in, their con in conversation with them, but so often it becomes glib to us, doesn't it? You know, how are you? We don't really want to know. <laughs> and somebody then proceeds to tell you how they are. You think, well, I didn't really want to know that. It was just being polite, you know. But we ought to really desire God's continued favor to be upon fellow believers. And so, in a sense, this greeting is a great greeting. Grace be unto you. May God's favor rest upon you. At the very least, that ought to be our desire and our prayer for each other. And grace be unto you and peace. Peace is speaking of our relationship with God. You know, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have experienced the peace of God the peace with God, and the peace from God. Go back to Romans chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5. Verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we also have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. By implication, this, this word peace carries the idea of prosperity. So you and I are at peace with God. You and I have peace with God in our hearts. But in this greeting, what we're doing is we're desiring that those that we're greeting would continue to have godly prosperity. 
godly blessing upon them. May God show his favor towards you, and may he indeed continue to prosper you. That ought to be our desire for one another, that God would bless our fellow believers, that they would experience God's favor, and that they would experience God's blessing, grace and peace. You would desire that God's grace, God's peace, rest upon other believers. And you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we don't do this. And I guess we would feel a little strange in our culture doing this. Because, you know, when we shake someone's hand, we say hello. But, you know, it ought to be the desire of our heart, as I said earlier, that grace and peace would be upon our fellow believers. In the salutation we find also it conveys a blessing from the triune God. Because he says, grace and peace be unto you, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So this grace of peace is to come from the triune God. What John is asking for his recipients, these seven churches in Asia Minor, he's asking that the triune God will bestow upon the recipients his grace and his favor. And first of all, he mentions God the Father because he is the source of all grace and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come. The Father here is named first. He's described as the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. He's the eternal, the unchangeable God. It's as though words cannot describe the Father. Because he talks about the Spirit by name. He talks about Jesus Christ by name. But he doesn't talk about the Father by name. He talks about the Father as the one who is and was and is to come. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. It's as though he's floundering to find words to describe the very character of God the Father. And he's desiring that grace and peace will be bestowed upon them by the everlasting, by the eternal God, the God that saved them, the God that demonstrated his grace unto them at salvation and brought peace through justification. This God, this same Father, he now asks, would bestow grace favor and prosperity, blessing upon these believers. You know, it's a real blessing to know that we have an eternal God, isn't it? That the grace you and I experience of salvation doesn't end at salvation because our God is not dead. His grace is an ongoing provision. And it's unmerited. God's grace is bestowed upon us not because we deserve it, but simply because God is a God of grace. And his peace is bestowed upon us for the same reason. Look what he says about um, the Lord in verse 8 here of chapter 1. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. In chapter 4 and verse 8, he's described this way. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and the, they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Chapter 11 
and verse 17. God the Father described this way, saying, We give thanks, O Lord. Chapter 11, verse 17. We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken thee thy great power and hast reigned. Chapter 16 and verse 15. Chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Uh, that's not the right chapter. Oh, messed that, messed that one up. Sorry about that. I hate it when I do that. I checked it out before I came. <laughs> I got it wrong. Anyway, God over and over again refers to himself as being this, this one who is eternal. And you and I receive the eternal blessings of Almighty God, the grace and peace of Almighty God daily because you and I have a God who is eternal. You know, this is a powerful greeting, is it? Grace be unto you and peace from the eternal God. This is not grace be unto you and peace from, you know, some fellow next door. It's not from Fred Brown. It's not grace and peace be unto you from the Prime Minister. Grace and peace be unto you from the, the Queen. This is grace and peace be unto you from the eternal God of heaven. And then he describes God the Spirit. He says, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Not only is this grace and peace coming from God the Father, but it's coming from God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the seven spirits. This speaks to the perfection and the completion of the Holy Spirit. He is the perfect Spirit of God in whom there is no diversity of gifts and operations. The seven spirits are before the throne of God. He's our divine intercessor. And grace and peace comes to us from God the Father. It comes to us from the sevenfold characteristic of the Spirit of God you and I. It's interesting in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, please. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, the sevenfold character of the Spirit is explained to us. Isaiah chapter 11. In verse 1 it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of, the root, out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. It's the spirit of the Lord, it's the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear. The sevenfold characteristic of the spirit of God. And in Revelation, he talks about the, the before the throne is the seven spirits which are before the throne. The sevenfold characteristic of the Spirit of God, the, this one who is the Spirit of the Lord, upon whom the Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. This grace of peace, this blessing that John is bestowing upon the believers comes from God the Father but also comes with the Spirit which is before the throne, this one who is the Spirit of the Lord, a Spirit of wisdom and knowledge, uh, sorry, and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. He's interceding on our behalf. 
before the throne. It isn't that there are seven different spirits of God, but rather the Spirit of the Lord has these characteristics, and he has them in all the fullness of affection. And it's from him John desires grace and peace. And then it's from God the Son in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ. And he describes the Lord here. He says, who is the faithful witness? The faithful witness. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The Lord Jesus Christ was from eternity a witness to all the counsels of God. And this speaks to Jesus' utter reliability and faithfulness to his Father and his people, even unto death. In John chapter 18 and verse 37, we read, Part therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth, Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. He's a faithful witness. You know, you and I know and understand the grace and peace of God because of Jesus Christ. While he was on earth, he, he was a witness to the grace of God, a witness to the peace of God. He is this faithful witness. His very death upon the cross of Calvary is a demonstration, is it not, of the grace of God. That the just would die for the unjust. That the Son of God would shed his precious blood to save sinners like you and I, so that by grace we are saved, through faith. His death upon the cross is the very uh, uh, example of the peace of God, isn't it? Because he is our satisfaction. He's the propitiation for our sins and ours only for the sins of the whole world. He satisfied the righteous demands of God so now that you and I are justified, can have peace with God. He's a faithful witness. You know, John here is piling upon evidence upon evidence that this grace and peace that he's wishing that God would bestow upon the believers is indeed genuine. It comes from the God who is eternal. It comes from the Spirit that is sevenfold. It comes from Jesus Christ, who is the eternal witness, a faithful witness. And notice what else he says about him. And the first begotten from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. This does not mean that Jesus had a birth date, and is therefore a created being and not God. The ancient rabbis called Yahweh himself firstborn of the world. We know that God was not born. This refers to his resurrection from the dead. It speaks of his position. That is, he retains priority and position over all who are resurrected from the dead. In contrast to those who were previously restored to life, like Zacharias, uh, uh, Zacchaeus, I said Zacchaeus, uh, like I'll get the wrong one. Lazarus, I'm thinking of Zacchaeus up the tree. He didn't get resurrected. Uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead and uh, 
he had to die again. Christ rose and is the first to receive the resurrection body, which is immortal. Acts 26, 23 says that Christ should suffer and he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. He is the first fruits. And others will follow. Look in 1 Corinthians 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 20. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. All those who are declared righteous will partake in the resurrection. You know, this is glorious. This grace and peace that you and I are recipients of is guaranteed to you and I by Jesus Christ, who is indeed the, the one who is the faithful witness. He testified to these things, but he proved it to be so by his resurrection. If you and I have any doubt about the fact that his death satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God and therefore can give to you and I peace, look at the resurrection. If you and I have any doubt about the grace of God, which brings favor to you and I, even though we don't deserve it, then look at the resurrection. We know Christ will one day rise because he is risen. We'll partake of the resurrection, a resurrection unto immortality. Because he rose first. He goes on and describes him further. He says, And the prince of the kings of the earth. This speaks of his power. Prophet, priest, and king. That's our savior. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, Revelation 19, 16 tells us. By him, the councils of all other kings are overruled. And to him, they are accountable. Before the book of Revelation is over, he will take dominion over every king of the earth. Psalm 2 and verse 8, Christ is promised by the Father, I'll give thee the heathen for thy inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. This eternal God who promises to us grace and peace and this eternal God who the Spirit of God testifies to that fact and the Son of God who made it all possible for you and I is the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who makes it possible for you and I. At this present time, Jesus rules a kingdom, but that kingdom is not of this world. One day, though, there will be an ultimate fulfillment of his role as rule, a ruler of the kings of the earth. Fulfilled after the victory over the beast of the false prophet in Revelation chapter 19. But there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. In his rightful position as king of kings and lord of lords. And in that day, he will fill Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 through seven, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
of his increase and of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He's the prince of peace. Grace be unto you and peace from the prince of peace. Grace be unto you and peace from the Savior who died and rose again. Grace and peace be unto you from the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he therefore deserves our worship. He deserves to be honored. He deserves to be obeyed as prophet, priest, and king. We should be subject to him as king. A great way to start a letter, hey? Imagine receiving an email like that from somebody. You know, starting out saying, you know, uh, you know, uh, Nigel to the, to the church, which is at wherever, or Nigel unto so-and-so, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which by the throne is for his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. And he hasn't finished yet, by the way. We have. But he hasn't finished yet, by the way. He goes on and says, Unto him that loved us and was washed from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's only at verse 6 and he's already saying amen. And you have to wait till next time for us to look at the rest of verse 5 and verse 6 as time has gone. I knew that was going to happen. Uh, time has gone. But this first part of the salutation is, is amazing. As I, as I was going through it today, I thought, boy, you could spend weeks just here in verse 4 and 5 and 6. In these three verses, we could spend weeks just looking at each one of these descriptions of God and the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ. He is his witness and his resurrection in our past. His future role of king is still future. So I have to explain this. John gives some special emphasis to what Christ has already done in verse 5b and 6, which I said we'll see next time. But tonight, because of who he is, because of who God is, we ought to worship him and move to serve him. What a glorious salutation. Grace be unto you, and peace be unto you. From God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And Lord, in so short a period of time of verses, there's such a rich wealth of information that John gives to us. Well, these three verses are a sermon in themselves. They could have been a book in themselves. And Father, we thank you that indeed your grace and your peace rests upon us. That we're saved by grace through faith. That we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. 
and that daily we experience your grace and daily we experience that peace because of who you are. Father, commend your word to our hearts this night as we go to prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Kendall.